happiness is a lot of things to a lot of people. I consider myself a very happy person, but I think we can know a lot more. So I started a study through reading and conversation, and I'd like you to join the trial of The People vs. Happiness. Welcome to the People vs. Happiness. This is David Musgrave. I hope you are having a fantastic day. I'm not just saying that, I really do. In fact, I want you to take a second and think about what the most positive thing that happened to you this week was, okay? Now, I want you to pause if you need to, because I, I seriously want you to think about this and come up with an answer and get that in your mind. It, it doesn't really matter if it's something huge. I mean, maybe you got a promotion or a new job or something really cool. Yeah, obviously that'd be great. But even something very small is just having a really pleasant conversation or seeing a nice sunrise. Just, just think about it for a moment and get an honest answer. If you need to pause, do so. Okay. Now, I just did a couple things that are going to make more sense once we go through the chapters one and two of broadcasting happiness. There are some techniques, some psychological methods to get people thinking positively, get them in the right mindset. So wanted to do that at the top of the episode here to get us all in the right mindset. <laughs> and that being said, I think I was a little bit negative after reviewing the intro. So I apologize there. I'll take that back a little bit. Um, I again, I'm not sure that I like Michelle uh, Guilin so much, but this book got better. What I do like about the book is that there are some case studies, some examples, some psychology, some actual science um, that's introduced. It's pretty interesting. And we'll talk about that a little bit as we go through chapters one and two. I do think it's only fair that I answer the question that I asked. And today at work, I was actually looking out the windows. We've got really big windows where I work up on the second floor, or I'm sorry, third floor. So I can see out a ways, but really have a really beautiful sky view. It's just nice and bright blue, very cold day, but a very clear day. And I just took a moment to really stop and enjoy that sight. And that was really just something really pleasant that happened to me this week. All right. But without any further delay, let's go ahead and start talking a little bit more about broadcasting happiness. So again, last week we talked about the introduction. Uh, and like I said, I felt that the Michelle Guilin came across a little elitist. Some of the moments where I feel like she was trying to be funny just kind of fell a little bit flat. And I felt a little more frustrated and detached than anything. I said I was going to be open minded. I said I was going to go into this um, really trying to, even if even if there was a lot of that in this book, I wanted to be able to find some little nuggets to pull out because let's face it, this is not a book review. What I'm trying to do here is enhance through our study together and through reading and, and trying to investigate happiness, expand our definition and change our definition about what happiness is and see if we can make ourselves happier people as a result. So chapter one is called The Value of Broadcasting Happiness. I do want to say that I started out taking a ton of notes on these chapters like I was trying to do a book review. It's almost like I really wanted to pull every other line that, that hit me as like, oh, that's kind of that's kind of cool. Or I want to talk about that. I was getting very bogged down and overwhelmed. So I, I did eventually start taking a step back and, and wanted to take a little more holistic view and just talk about some of what the book made me feel 
a little bit more as opposed to what was in the book. But early on in what I was talking about, I, I did come across some things that I did take some notes on. So we'll talk about that a little bit. One of the first things that really stuck out to me is that Guylin chooses a quote by Henry David Thoreau that says, there are a thousand hacking at the branches of evil to one who is striking at the root. Okay. Guylin basically says that it's easy to get upset about negativity in the world. However, unless we are getting to the root of the issue, then what's the point? Why, why get upset about it when there's really not a lot you can do? There's always going to be a ton of negativity in the world. One person alone, even a lot of people can't stop the negativity, can't address every single negative thing that's going to happen because it's going to keep coming. However, if you get back down to the root of it, it's the way that we approach our view on negativity, the way that we navigate through life. And can we do so in a way that's that's more like, yeah, we know there's negativity, but let's focus on the positive, right? So we did talk about how she was finding that there's a trap that journalists tend to follow into, as well as our friends and families and coworkers. And, and that is that we choose what we want to report upon. And it seems like negative sells more that the people want the, the worst news. We tend to want to gravitate towards the bad stories, right? In fact, she shares something that somebody told her once, which was people want the negative. We're addicted and negativity is our drug. And that's why we drink. So this was when she was, you know, in the midst of journalism, this was kind of the mentality and the mindset and something that someone told her. So clearly that's what was believed. She decided that wasn't going to work for her. And she said, you know what? I want to do happy week. So she pitched it to CBS news. And as you can imagine, at first it was not enthusiastically accepted, right? Really what she was trying to do at this point, I think, we talked about this. This is in the midst of the recession. So all stories were people losing their homes, people losing their money. It was getting really negative, but she wanted to find ways to promote happiness in the midst of the recession. Finally, she she talks to the right producer and, and gets this push through. Okay, yeah, let's try it. Let's focus on some more happy stories in this negative and unhappy time, right? And what Guylin then claims is that she received more positive emails from that week of segments than she did in the entire year before. So people were stating that it helped them feel more in control of their happiness, right? To know that, yeah, the things are bad, but it's all in your mindset. There are still good things in our lives and still good things happen. So I started thinking about it and, you know, can I relate this back to my life? Okay, what's going on currently in my life? Well, I work at a place that is 100% negative vibes. I'm not 100%, but really, without saying too much about what I do for a living, I work in a department that handles the people that get the most angry at our company, right? So the, the people that were basically considered the Navy SEALs because we're the, the the people that can fix whatever the situation is. So we get the worst of the worst, the weirdest of the weird. And that comes to our department. So there's constantly negativity just coming through. And as you can imagine, that is infectious. You deal with that all day, every day, and you're going to start feeling pretty negative. So I started thinking as I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, I really need to think about how I can turn this into a positive for myself at work. So we'll talk a little bit more about that later as we get through this. But I decided that I'm going to try to highlight the positive at work instead of the negative. Now, a story that Guylin actually did during this time was one of two brothers who were both facing foreclosure. Again, lots of people were losing their jobs, right? Well, it turns out these two hadn't spoken with one another for 20 years. So uh, there's a huge gap between them. But one of them who was about to lose their home found out that the other one was about to lose their home as well. So he reached out to them and they decided, you know what? Let's put the past behind us. Let's pull our resources together and let's save one of our houses. And at least we have a home. We, we're safe. We're in control. 
We can we can live together. We can try to get along. And actually, they found that they ended up being even happier than they were before. And through this positive experience that through a negative thing, they actually had a family member that they hadn't spoken to for a long time. And it, it really changed their life and got them back on track to where they probably wish they were way before then. So this kind of story and, and many others Guyland was reporting on, and it kind of made her realize, you know, I need to do more in the field of positivity. Journalism is just I, I got to get out of this. Like I said in the uh, introduction week, she quit her job to, to focus on psychology. So she actually got an advanced degree in applied positive psychology. Here's the thing that I noticed at this point. I had still been negative, and you may notice that I've got some positive things that I'm talking about here, but I still didn't really feel very focused. I felt still like I was I was thinking about some of those comments about, uh, you know, Yale and all that stuff from before that, that made me have some negative feelings towards the author herself. But I did experience a slight mind shift at this point. I'm not sure if it's the fact that she legitimized her point of view by mentioning that she got a degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, But however, I started to feel more positive about the book. And it's a small but interesting parallel for the subject matter because uh, you'll actually hear more when I talk about chapter two. All of these mentions of positivity and and moving more towards the subject matter than the introduction had actually been doing just seemed to be affecting me just a little bit at this point. Enough for me to to make a a mental note of it. After she got her degree, she went on to co-found the IAPR, which is the Institute for Applied Positive Research. She did this with the person who eventually became her husband, and that is Sean Anker. So again, while I was still taking pretty close notes here, I did write down some things because she she came out and said that there are three main conclusions that she really kind of came across, and that's that uh, the vision of reality we share changes other people and can move them from paralysis to activation. And when I first read that, I was like, Okay. All right. Well, we'll see what happens there. But really, I through through my reading of this book, I came way more into an understanding that, you know, you always hear perception is reality type of a thing and did a little thought experiment myself, which I'll talk about later. But so the first of her conclusions is that the, you know, our perception of reality will kind of change our experience and change what we share with other people. And we can actually impact other people and, and move them from this kind of paralysis through that they are experiencing and negativity towards activation and, and kind of get them in a better mindset, right? So through this, there there is something I do want to quote verbatim here, and that is that the stories we tell about the world predict whether we believe that happiness is a choice and whether we'll take action to create happiness or stay stagnant, inert, and powerless. Okay, so you can probably, if you've listened to any of the People versus Happiness, you know that one of our questions is, is happiness a choice? So here again was another moment where there was just a little bit of a, a switch flip moment where I'm in, okay? You got me. I'm invested more with that sentence than I have been in this book so far. I love the perception is reality thing. I talk about that all the time on smaller scales, but I really, I think that this is what kind of caught me the most in the book, at least up to this point and you'll see it kind of carries through. Okay, so it also kind of made me start thinking, how do I apply this back to, to my personal life a little bit? Where, where are some examples I've come across elsewhere about perception changing reality and the stories we tell ourselves changing our reality? And I started thinking, this book is kind of rooted at this point in the recession around 2008, right? What That was the biggest economic catastrophe in U.S. history since the Great Depression. Then my mind went 
went over to Of Mice and Men, okay, John Steinbeck. And this is a little glom, I know, but Linny and George, right? So Linny is kind of a big galoof of a person, and George is somebody who's just basically trying to get by with his buddy, and no one else is looked out for because he's, you know, a little slow, whatever the case may be. They're in the middle of the Great Depression. They're trying to find work. You know, it's it's bad. It's not good for them. However, George tells Linny a story about a farm and how there will be rabbits there. And Linny likes animals. It's kind of a big part of the book, but he likes animals. So he likes the idea of petting the bunnies and being on the farm. And, and you know, this is a story that they tell. Now, this is a little bit of a literal interpretation of it. However, for Linny, George was creating a perception of an, a reality that will take place in the future. They chose to focus on something positive while they're in the midst of complete negativity. And it's kind of beautiful when you think about it this way, because George really was trying to change reality for Linny in the only way he could, which was through the stories that he told. So there was just a, a sudden bolt of lightning, a direct parallel between those two stories for me for a moment that just is one very small kind of example of something in literature that, that applies to this. Okay. Now, I thought of another very silly example that's similar to this in a fictional story. And if you do listen to The People versus Happiness and you have listened to the Concession Counters episode where we review The Conjuring, there's a moment in that as well where Lorraine Warren learns about this really nice day that the family, the parents have on a beach. You know, really, really pleasant day. That's kind of a little story that she gathers from the family, right? Well, not to spoil it, go listen to the episode, but some really bad things happen to the family, right? And we're talking like demonic possession type bad. Lorraine is able to use that story to connect back to the mother of the parent family and bring her reality back into focus and give her the strength to kind of be more positive and fight a very negative influence in her life all at once. So again, just another parallel that's been in my mind very recently to this. I think it, it must have been the line that the stories we tell about the world predict whether we believe that happiness is a choice. I think that is really what made me start thinking about fictional stories. But still, just a little bit of a parallel that I'm able to find in some fictional moments and some fictional examples. But you'll hear me talk about this more later on about how I, I kind of apply this more in, into my personal life as well. So then she says that not only are stories predictive of happiness, they can also impact uh, you know business, education, health, intelligence, energy, profitability all kinds of things, right? And again, I was kind of negative about some of the statistics that she provided in the introduction, but she goes on to give some pretty interesting examples that do seem kind of more scientifically sound than I was expecting. So I, I'm still kind of with it. Probably not when I read that sentence or, or that uh, conclusion at first, but now in, in retrospect, I definitely am. And then lastly, we're all broadcasters. So every single one of us are are out there either putting negativity or positivity into the world and, and uh, impacting those around us as a result. So, okay. Again, I want to kind of talk about how this book really makes me feel personally, how it impacts my life and get a little bit more off the page and just use some of the stuff within the book to feed into that. However, 
there is a very interesting study that a Dr. Ellen Langer uh, did on the effects of aging process and how our mental story affects that. And and that story, you know, in a nutshell is basically this. In the 70s, they took a group of men who were in their 70s on a weekend retreat. Now, the only thing they told them before this trip was don't bring any photographs, any magazines, books, any kind of media, anything, actually, any items that would remind you of the last 20 years of your life. Other than that, come on, let's go out. We're going to have a good time and you'll see. So they get out there and sure enough, they've got this place set up like it was the 50s. And so they were then instructed to not talk about the last 20 years of their lives. So basically pretend like you're living in the 50s. So they do this for a week. Okay. At the end of the week, they actually showed pictures to people, a group of people before before they went on the retreat and then a different group of people pictures of them after they went on the retreat the people that looked at the pictures before gave an average age of what they thought the individuals were and the people afterwards did the same and it was an average of three years younger after this retreat that the people were saying they looked so it had a notable took three years off their life in theory here just by pretending to be 20 years in the past for one week okay now they noticed things like their posture being improved and just having more all kinds of crazy stuff so it had a, an actual physical effect on these people just by pretending that they were 20 years in the past for one week pretty cool oh and actually yeah i almost forgot this i think the most incredible part of that study was that the men's eyesight had actually improved on average 10%. So, I mean, that seems like a direct physical impact. So, yeah. And yeah, if you think about it, I mean, we, I'm sure you've probably heard about power poses, right? So this is where you're supposed to basically do like a, a Superman, put your, your hands on your hips and sh- shoot your arms out to the side and stand like that for a certain amount of time. People will do it for like two minutes or so before going into an interview. Well, they actually have studied this and show that a drop in your levels of stress hormones can be up to 25%. Your testosterone as a man can increase by 20%. And you know, I think there is something to be said about this because by mentally almost tricking yourself you know we, we think about it as a mental thing right that you're you're going to act confident well guess what if you act confident people are going to think you're confident if you act capable in a situation people are going to think you're capable in a situation that's why people do these kind of things before going into an interview because it will then hopefully result in the person choosing someone to come and do a job is going to then say, okay, this person is capable of doing that job. But it also actually has a physical impact on yourself. So really very interesting. And and, and if you think about it, it, could possibly perpetuate a cycle. You know, you, you act like you have confidence, fake it till you make it. You may actually then start to get more confidence from a physical standpoint. And it might just kind of feed that cycle upward and upward. So creating a cycle of positivity within yourself, even if you have to fake the narrative a little bit at first, can actually have positive effects. So something that I think is interesting that she talked about next is um, Nationwide Company. They had to kind of change their story a little bit because apparently the president thought that all this, you know, happiness stuff is fluff and kind of the mentality was that, you know, if you're if you're having a good time at work, you're probably not working hard enough. So let's buckle down, hit our numbers and then guess what? We'll all be happy on the other side of that. Right. But I know I can personally think of jobs where I was really 
push to just drive, 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 drive. And it's all about, it doesn't matter what you do. You know, it doesn't matter how many hours you have to put in and how hard you have to work. We just have to get this done. And, and that's the only focus. It tends to be very stressful and will kind of tear you down. And guess what? You don't want to work as hard. But ultimately, they decided to do this initiative called Project Orange Frog, which basically, long story short, I'm not going to go into details. I started doing a bunch of silly things with frogs and plush frogs and all kinds of stuff and ended up painting the office orange and, and whatnot. But the initiative was to focus on happiness and, and really just be open about happiness and allow people to enjoy the environment in which they work. You see a lot of this in, in modern corporations. They'll put a ping pong table in, in the corner or something like that. That doesn't necessarily bring happiness and, and is a little forced, but apparently they did a pretty good job at, at Nationwide to the point, though, that where, you know, the COO was getting on social media and talking about like daily, like, this is why I'm grateful for my job. This is why I'm grateful to be in the company that I am and those kind of things. And and they did a really good job and saw profits basically triple because people were getting more engaged and, and wanting to be happy and talk about happiness in their workplace. And then as a result, they got re-engaged in work. You know, we didn't go into a lot of details on how they accomplished that. But, you know, I, I do think if done well in a workplace and I can speak from from personal experiences, being happy and wanting to be at work is a huge thing. Right. You know, I've heard people talk about driving on the way to work and saying, you know what, I'd rather drive my car into that telephone pole right there than actually go to work. Obviously, when that person gets to work, they're not going to be engaged and they're not going to be productive. Right. Well, I find myself kind of rambling on a little bit about chapter one, and there's a lot to the back end of that chapter. There's a moment that talks about how it doesn't matter what position you're in. If you're positive, you can affect change. And I do like that. The rest of the chapter is a little more of kind of another introduction to the rest of the book because it talks about things that they're going to talk about in the chapters to come. Actually, I'm way more excited to talk about chapter two because I feel like this is where the book starts to get a little more focus. And I'm I, I don't know, you, you might be able tell that I have some excitement about this book that wasn't there before uh, when I just had read the introduction. But this this first chapter, it, it really does feel like while there are a couple small examples here and there, it's still very introductory. It's very surface level. It doesn't go very deep. Chapter two changes that a lot. And I hope the rest of the book is indicative of that. Now, for time's sake, I'm probably going to stop here. I, I know I said we we're going to talk about chapters one and two, but I think I'll probably break this up again and I'll talk about chapter two in the next episode. And since I'm doing smaller chunks, that next episode may actually come a little quicker. So stay tuned. I'll try to get that out as quickly as possible. But let me just take a moment kind of here to, to review the chapter. Uh, again, not, a, not book review style. Let me just really try to think. Let me take a step back and think about everything we talked about. So again, the biggest thing that I take from this chapter that has, again, not gone very deep is that perception is reality. I think this is going to be a big theme for, for this book for me. And it's something that I've already really believed and said, like I mentioned before, I, I often will say that, especially when when talking about like an engagement with a customer from a work perspective or a client, it's, uh, you know, this person may be totally upset about something that seems unrealistic or that we know is not true. Well, guess what? That's how they see it. And perception is reality. So they have a situation where there's this terrible thing that needs to be addressed. How do we change that individual's perception 
is a big part of a lot of customer service and sales jobs, right? So how do we apply that back to just our personal lives? How do we change our own perspective to become happier? Because again, that's what this is about, right? Is becoming better, happier people. Well, I'm going to go a lot more into this in the second chapter because there are some really good examples on how to do this, not only for yourself, and but also for people around you. So I'm, I'm kind of teasing the next episode a little bit, uh, but I did just want to say that that is, that is primarily what I'm, what I'm getting from this book so far and what I really want to focus on. I did read chapter one and chapter two on two different days. And I don't, again, you might be able to tell I don't have a, going back and looking at chapter one and, and kind of rereading it a little bit for this episode, it's not as clear. There's not, there's not a lot for me to dig much deeper into, but I do want to say that there is much more coming in chapter two. I keep finding myself wanting to talk about it, but I don't want to get ahead of myself because I'll go ahead and record another half an hour if I do so. So sorry if this seemed a little all over the place and not focused. I promise it's going to get better because the book gets better in the next couple of chapters. And um, again, while this is not a book review, I am trying to kind of follow where my mindset is at each step of the way through reading these chapters. So honestly, this is probably how I was feeling pretty, pretty closely after chapter one. And, and maybe I really do need to just break this down chapter by chapter and for each episode. But I will say in looking at this and trying to see is my perception of happiness, my definition of happiness in the way that I want to approach my happiness changing by reading this book. I don't think the definition necessarily at this point, but I will say that in reading some examples about how this is applied to business, I, I am starting to think more about my work and my job than I was expecting to, which is interesting because I, after doing the second chapter, I did some experiments from that, from that chapter. Chapter, and we'll talk about that more next time, but have some really interesting results that I'm very excited to share. So that'll, that'll come with the next episode and, and our discussion of the next chapter. But until then, let me know. I mean, reach out to me. Let me know what you think about this series so far. Again, it, it's almost like I talked about an introduction and then a, a second introduction. I understand. But tell me if you're finding this interesting, if you're excited to see kind of where it goes once we start to really get into the meat of the book and, and, and trying to change our definition of happiness. You can reach me at the people versus happiness at gmail.com at the people versus happiness on instagram you'll find us the people versus happiness on facebook and thvp podcast on twitter all right so i think that's it for me for now i'm feeling happy i hope you are until next time do what makes you happy magazines, books,